Good morning. As you're finding your seats, if you could turn to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, one more time. We're going to be in this passage again this morning. Um, I know we've got rid of announcements as a church for the most part, but I just wanted to announce. Um, next week, we're going to have a coffee with the pastors. So if you're interested in coming, if you're newer, or if you've been coming to Country Oaks for a long time, or... Uh, in other words, it doesn't matter who you are. If you want to come um, to get to know the pastors a little bit better, or if you have some questions, um, if you want to get to know Dan and some of the uh, process we went through in um, finding Dan and bringing him, Daniel, onto the team, uh, we'd love to answer those questions. So next week uh, after church at 2 o'clock, is it 2? 2 o'clock. Uh, it's Coffee with the Pastors. So if you have some questions, you can ask Craig or me about that. But we're going to be in Exodus 6, chapter 2 through 8. One more time, if you would, read along with me, starting in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land, into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You would pray with me as we once again go into this text. Dear Holy Father God, Lord, I thank you for the promises that we see in this passage promises that you gave to Moses to give to Israel that we see, Lord, in our lives. You are a God that redeems. You are a God that adopts. You are a God that promises a great inheritance, Lord. God, I pray as we go through this passage this morning, we find ourselves seeing you as a God that is a father that loves us. God, be with us this morning. I thank you for this passage. Be with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate communion together as a body, Lord. I pray that we reflect on your Son and what he's done on the cross, Lord, and what it means in our individual lives and what it means to us as a community, Lord. Be with us this morning in your Son's name. Amen. Again, as I said, we're going to spend one more day in this passage. I know we have spent a lot of time on Exodus chapter 6 to through 8. But I want to spend one more day on this passage, and there's really two reasons why. The first is today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. And I want to review the connection that we talked about last week that this passage has to communion. The second reason I wanted to go through this passage one more time is I didn't want to leave us where I did last week, leave us with really a negative, with just what 
God has saved us from, or what, what God has redeemed us from, slavery to sin, bondage to sin. Today, I really want to focus on the positive. In other words, what God has redeemed us to. So, I want to start this morning again by reviewing one more time what we have been seeing the last couple of weeks, especially last week. We've said that this is a poem. Moses found himself in a very discouraging point in chapter 5 and chapter 6. God responds to Moses' prayer with a poem, a poem to encourage Moses. And there's really two parts to this poem. The historical part, which can be summed up with the last phrase that says, I have remembered my covenant. And the predictive part. Within the predictive part where we've spent most of our time, there are seven I wills or seven promises in these three verses, verses 6 through 8. If you would, look at verse 6. It says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. Again, that's capital L-O-R-D, meaning that's the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The first I will is this, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. As we've seen, the Israelites had heavy burdens. The second I will is I will deliver you from slavery to them. 400 years of slavery. The third I will is I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is going to redeem Israel. The fourth I will is found in verse 7. It says, I will take you to be my people. In other words, God is going to adopt Israel as his own, and I will be your God. It's the fifth I will. There's two more I wills in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And then this poem ends with the phrase, I am Yahweh. It's a very important passage as we've been seeing for both the Israelites and really for the New Testament believer too. I said last week that the Old Testament brings a richness to the New Testament that we wouldn't have if we didn't take the time to examine the Old Testament. A richness we would be missing without the Old Testament. And this is really true as we approach the Lord's table this morning, communion. During the time of Jesus, the Jews celebrated the Passover feast, a feast largely that pointed the Jews back to the Exodus in the book of Exodus, in the story, the historical story, the true story of God redeeming a people and taking them as their own, remembering God's fulfillment of his promises. And the Passover feast was the meal where Jesus established the Lord's Supper or communion what we will be celebrating today. According to Jewish oral tradition, as I said last week, the Passover had four cups of wine that was passed around throughout the meal. This meal would have lasted for hours, and these cups were passed around throughout the whole meal. These cups pointed back to Exodus chapter 6, pointed back to the I wills that are found in the second part of this poem. In fact, they correspond with the first four I wills of Exodus chapter 6. The first cup corresponds to the first promise, or the first I will, I will bring you out. The second cup 
corresponds to the second promise or the second I will. I will deliver you. The third cup that was passed around corresponded with the third I will. I will redeem you. And finally, the fourth cup pointed to the fourth I will. I will take you. These cups pointed back to Exodus 6, the seven promises that we see in the second half of this poem in Exodus 6. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. This is what I'd like to do this morning. I want to walk through this last meal Jesus had with his disciples. Luke chapter 22, verse 14. This is the last official Passover ever and the first communion. This is where Jesus establishes communion and commands the church to partake in remembrance of him. If you would, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I have earnestly desired, Jesus said. In fact, in the Greek, there's an intensity here or forcefulness. Literally, if you translated it word for word, it'd be something like, with desire, I have desired. Jesus had a strong desire to have this meal with his disciples before he would go to the cross the next day. And I think there's probably at least three reasons why he had such a strong desire. First, simply, he was just looking forward to spending some time with those he loved the night before the cross. Second, he wanted to establish communion, an ordinance that is given to the church to remember what he was about to do the next day. But thirdly, he wanted the disciples to see how the Old Testament pointed to him. Jesus had a passion to connect the Old Testament to his ministry. He had a passion for this. You see this at the end of Luke. And I think he had a passion for this for a number of reasons, but one, he wanted his disciples and the apostles and the church to be absolutely certain that this was the word of God and that it connected to his ministry. In fact, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 44. It's just a page over, same chapter. It says this in verse 44, Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, These are are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that's Exodus. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. At this point, there is no New Testament written yet, so this is talking about the Old Testament. He opened their minds to understand the Old Testament. Jesus had a passion for teaching the Old Testament and how it pointed to him. You see this throughout his ministry. In fact, he spends 40 days intensely teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God and how it pointed to him. The Old Testament points to him before he would even send them out to establish the church. So the night before his death, he had a strong desire to celebrate the Passover. He wanted to teach 
the significance of the Passover and how the exodus of the Passover pointed to him. Verse 15, it says this. Turn back to Luke chapter 22, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying here that this is the last official Passover ever until my second coming. When the kingdom of God will be established on this earth. Verse 17, and he took a cup. This would be the first cup. First cup of wine that that started the meal of the Passover that was passed around. It pointed back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, which says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It pointed to a promise of liberation. Freedom from slavery and heavy burdens. Verse 17, again, it says this, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, this is the last official Passover until the kingdom of God comes where I believe we will celebrate Passover again with Jesus. But instead of pointing back to the Exodus, we will be celebrating what Christ did on the cross. It's after this that they would eat bitter herbs and a message was given to explain the meaning of the Passover. I'm assuming Jesus gave this message. Then the second cup was passed around. This pointed to the second I will of Exodus 6, verse 6. I will deliver you from slavery. You would drink this cup just before the unleavened bread, verse 19. And he took bread. Again, that's the unleavened bread. It's after the second cup. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took the bread of the Passover meal again and broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. That phrase, this is my body which is given for you, points to one of the most significant truths in all of Scripture. That Jesus is our substitute. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement. Fancy word. It just means that Jesus took the punishment we deserved. He was our substitute. He took the punishment we deserved so that we could, he could atone for our sins. Therefore, we could be forgiven. It's a fancy word, but the concept seen throughout Scripture. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, that's God, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our substitute. That's what we celebrate 
as we come to the Lord's table. Verse 19, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's here we see Jesus start to change the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper to communion. I just want to point out one thing in this phrase. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. In Greek, it's an imperative. It's very clear. The church is called to do this in remembrance of Christ. Baptism and communion are ordinances. They're given to us. They're commanded in Scripture. We are commanded to come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not an option. You know, it was one of my greatest burdens for our church when we were told not to meet last year that we are commanded to come together, 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, Hebrews 10, 25, we are commanded to come together and celebrate communion as a body. Just as a side note, in persecuted countries, people risk imprisonment. Christians risk their lives to be baptized and to come together to celebrate the Lord's table. The early church was persecuted heavily for celebrating communion. It's one of the main reasons we opened up last year and stayed open because we are commanded to come together as a body and celebrate at the Lord's table. One day, and again, probably soon, we'll have to go underground and do that. I'm thankful we can do it now. But look what it says in verse 19. And he took bread, and he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. From here in the Passover meal, the roasted lamb would have been eaten. It was after that, after the meal, that the third cup was passed around. We spent a lot of time last week on this cup, verse 20, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, again, in the Passover meal, this would have been the third cup right after they would have eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my body. The third cup is often called the cup of Redemption. It pointed to the third I will in Exodus 6, verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is the cup that Jesus took and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was the third cup, the cup of redemption. Again, we spent a whole sermon on that last week. If you didn't hear it, I encourage you, it's online. It's that cup that Jesus established communion against, what we celebrate and what we're about to celebrate today. And I think it's important that we know that it's the cup of redemption. The cup that the Passover pointed back to the phrase, I will redeem you. Again, Luke 22, it's the last official Passover ever celebrated in this age, in the first ever communion 
Which leads to a, a question that I hope maybe you've asked as you've read through uh, this passage. What about the fourth cup? Remember, there was four cups for the Passover feast. Luke really only alludes to three, the first three. The fourth cup would have been passed around the very end of the night to close the whole celebration, to close the Passover meal. Again, the fourth cup corresponded with the fourth I will, I will take you. In fact, it points to all the last four I wills, but in particular, I will take you. Even after, traditionally, in the oral law, after you would take the fourth cup at the end of the night, the Israelites would recite Exodus 6, verse 7, which is, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's how they would end it. They would say that together. The first two cups, again, points to the promise of liberation. Exodus 6, 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup pointed to the promise of redemption. Verse 6, I will redeem you. Exodus 6, 6. The fourth cup pointed to the promise of adoption and a great possession. Verse 7, Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Listen again to Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you. I will take you. That word take really has the idea of adopt. I will adopt you. I will adopt you as my own, and I will be your God. With God, redemption, right, being brought out and being bought out of slavery, redemption always leads to adoption. God doesn't just free us. He didn't just free the Israelites and leave them on their own. He adopts us. This was true for Israel. Again, Exodus 6, 6. I, that's Yahweh, I will redeem you. That's Israel. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. Right after that is verse 7. I will take you. I will adopt you, in other words, to be my people and I will be your God. Redemption leads to adoption. That's the will of God. God is a redeeming God. He's also a loving father. He adopts us into his family. It's not just true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. Turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. says this in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem. God sent his Son to redeem us, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive, we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption leads to adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're familiar with that word, Abba. That's like 
saying, Daddy. In other words, the Spirit is given to us that put our faith, that have been redeemed, and encourages us to call out to God as Daddy. Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8.15 says something very similar. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Listen, no longer children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. No longer slaves in bondage. Now children of God. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We were redeemed once slaves, bought out of slavery, the precious blood of Christ. We, we were redeemed. Now we are adopted. Now sons. I just think one of the most important things you can have in your mind as you go throughout the day when it comes to your relationship with God, that if you've put your faith in Christ, if you have been redeemed, He is now your loving Father. I know for some of you, maybe you didn't have, you weren't blessed to have a father that was loving and caring and compassionate. I'm sorry for that. But if you put your faith in Jesus, you do have a heavenly father, that is. In fact, Fathers, we have a great responsibility. You know, that word father, when we read it in Scripture, has a lot of context that comes with it, right? And we're filling in that context as fathers. One of the greatest things you can think of when you think of God is a loving father. John Owen writes, Few can carry up their hearts and minds to the height by faith as to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome regions of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. But how to attain to this pitch they know not. This is the will of God, that he may always be eyed as gentle, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. And that, peculiarly, as the Father, as a great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love, this is what which Christ came to reveal. God is our Father. We've been adopted into his family. We not only have been redeemed from slavery, 
but he didn't just leave us alone. He adopted us into his family. And there's at least four benefits of being adopted into God's family. First, because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, we can go to him with our needs. In fact, that's how Christ encourages us to pray. Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this, our Father. We go to God as a Father. Matthew 7, verse 11 says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? One of the benefits of being adopted as son and daughters of God is we can go to him with our needs. Another benefit of being adopted as sons and daughters of God we can trust in his love, compassion, protection, and provision. God is a loving father. He loves us. He's proven it. 1 John 4:10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God the Father out of his love sent his son to redeem us, to save us, to adopt us into his family purely out of his love. God is a compassionate father. Psalms 103.13 As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is a protecting father. Romans 8, 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is a providing father. Luke 12, 29, And do not seek what you to eat and what you are to drink, or be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. We can trust God. Therefore, we seek his kingdom, his glory, and trust that he'll take care of us. A third benefit of being adopted is because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, we are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. One theologian said this, the church is not merely a social club or a political organization. We're not a political organization. Everyone wants us to be a political organization. We're not. We're not knitted together by common interests or shared hobbies but instead by virtue of the electing work of the Father, 
the redemptive work of the Son and the regenerating work of the Spirit. We are objectively united to one another as members of the same family. We are family. Church is not a social club. It's a family. You sign up for membership, you're saying we're members of a family, of a body. It's connected. If you're newer and you haven't come long enough to feel like Country Oaks is your family, we are. If you have your faith in Christ and you've been adopted into God's family, you are our family. I just want to say I'm thankful that this feels like family to me. You know, I tell people all the time that I'd be out of California like that if it wasn't for this church. It's just the truth. I'm not leaving my family. We see this phrase and words throughout all of Scripture. Matthew 12, 49 says this, and, and stretching out his hands, this is Jesus, towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brothers and sisters and mother. We see that phrase, brothers, everywhere. Acts one fifteen. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. You know, that's another thing that the early church got persecuted for, was calling each other as brothers and sisters. It was confusing to the Greek world, to the Romans. They thought weird incest was happening. They didn't get this idea of being adopted into God's family and that we are brothers and sisters. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers, it's Paul's heart, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We are united as a family in God's love, adopted sons and daughters, meaning we are brothers and sisters. It's one of the reasons you should never come to the Lord's table if you have aught with a brother or sister. One of the things we celebrate at the Lord's table is our brotherhood, our adoption, our unity. You should seek out a brother and sister and ask for forgiveness, seek reconciliation before you come to the Lord's table. A fourth benefit of being adopted, because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, we are promised a glorious future, a possession, an inheritance. Remember Exodus 6.6. 6. Redemption, right? I will redeem you. Redemption leads to adoption. I will take you. Adoption leads to a glorious future. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to, to Isaac, to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. Exodus 6, verse 8. Let me just read once again Romans eight fifteen. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. Joint heirs with Christ. That's amazing. Just let that settle in for a second. To be honest, I I don't even know what that means. (laughs) What does it mean to be co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ? I just want to read a portion of the systematic theology book called Biblical Doctrine. I just don't know what to say to this. So I, I read this, and this is just the best explanation I can find. In addition to all these privileges that we enjoy in the present time, our adoptions as children of God also guarantee us a share in the future inheritance of eternal life. Paul writes that if we are adopted children, then we must also necessarily be heirs. We are no longer slaves but sons, and if sons, then heir through God. Then an heir through God. That's Galatians 4, 7. What is an heir? In human relations... Sons and daughters inherit the estate of their parents at the time of their passing. All that belongs to the parents is bestowed to the children as they carry on the family's name and legacy. Everything is passed down to the son, in other words, to the heir. In a similar way, though, by nature, we had no rightful claim to all the riches of the kingdom of God. By grace, we have become adopted Children, God's adopted children, have thus become legal heirs of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. 1 Peter 1 4. So real is our inheritance that we are described as fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8 17. In other words, Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance. Let that settle in. Everything that Christ receives by divine right as God's natural son, we will receive by divine grace as adopted children of God. Because Christ is God's son, all that the Father has belongs to him. How much does God have? And because we are in Christ, everything that is Christ is ours. I mean, is that really true? Everything that's Christ is ours. His blessings, in other words, because of his faithfulness, become our blessings. Think of what's promised to to Christ, to Jesus, for his faithfulness to the Son. Everything. That's a great commission. It says this, all authority, everything, all authority has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. In fact, listen to Ephesians 1.19. It says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. God gave him everything. All authority. At the right hand of God. Verse 21, Far above all 
all rule and authority and power and dominion far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, the one to come. What did God give his faithful son? Everything. Seated him at the right hand, right? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, this is what it says in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Where are we seated then? The right hand of God. That's an amazing thought. God has promised us everything. In fact, that's exactly what Ephesians 1-3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. <laughs> In the heavenly places. The redeemed have become adopted sons and daughters from slaves to sons and daughters. And we are sure to enjoy all the blessings of heavens in God's presence, for God promises that whoever overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelations 21, verse 7. Remember the fourth cup. Right, that fourth cup points back to Exodus 6, 7, which says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's a phrase that you would, would repeat after you would take that fourth cup, the cup of future blessings. Revelations 21, 7 says, Whoever overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Listen, the night when Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he had a Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus and the disciples drank the first two cups, pointing back to the promise of liberation. Then he passed around the third cup, pointing to the promise of redemption. Exodus 6, 6, I will redeem you. It was this cup when Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But in all the Gospels, it doesn't seem like Jesus drank the fourth cup. Why? What is significant about the fourth cup of wine? The fourth cup, again, is called the cup of future blessings. You drank it at the end of the night. After you drank it, you recited again, Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I'll be your God. Here's what I think. This is just a guess. I think Jesus is waiting to drink that fourth cup. Till we are in physical fellowship with him in the kingdom to come. Luke twenty two eighteen. 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. I believe one day he will drink that fourth cup with us in fellowship in an earthly kingdom. A physical kingdom with physical bodies. And he will say, I have taken you as my people and I am your God.
Therefore, when we celebrate communion together, we really celebrate the past, the present, and the future. The past, the present, and the future. We celebrate our past redemption. We were slaves in bondage to sin, spiritually dead, corpse spiritually. And Christ set us free. He paid the price we owed and bought us out of slavery and gave us life and freedom. We celebrate our past redemption. We also celebrate our present adoption. We have been adopted. We have a Father in heaven who loves us, who has adopted us into his family. And we are a body united by this love. We are brothers and sisters. Communion, as we come to the table together, we come as a family. We celebrate our unity as a family. We celebrate our unity as brothers and sisters. And I just want to say this. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It's all about race and our culture right now. In the church, we are brothers and sisters, no matter what your past is. And our unity as a family comes before any ethnicity. We are brothers and sisters. We celebrate our present adoption. We also celebrate our future inheritance. Communion points to a future blessing. As brothers and sisters, as adopted children of God, we're promised an inheritance. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The Lord's table is a celebration, a celebration of our past redemption, our present adoption, and our future inheritance. We celebrate joyfully. Let's go to the Lord's table right now. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on any sins, any ought we have with a brother or sister, anything we need to repent from within our lives, then we'll come to the Lord's table in joy, knowing that we are forgiven. I would say this, if you're not a Christian, or if you don't know where you stand with the Lord, I would ask you not to take part part with the communion this morning. Um, No one's going to judge you. In fact, there will be respect, that you have enough respect to, to not come to the Lord's table. I would ask you this, though, Seek the Lord and see where you stand with him. God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Put your faith in him. He died on the cross and he was raised the third day. He's the king of king and lord of lords. Trust in him and find salvation. Let's take a moment of silence. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, he also took the cup. 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. We're going to take an offering at the end of the service today after we sing. Um, we'll have deacons in the back with offering plates. Just so you know, that's the deacon's offering. That goes strictly to people in need within our church first and within the community second. Um, if you would like to give some money towards that, please feel free as you go out. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you did on that cross, Lord, for our redemption, our adoption, Lord, and the promise of a beautiful, glorious future, Lord, an inheritance that is kept for us, Lord. I pray that our hope is, is always in that inheritance, and it drives us to live boldly, Lord, for you, to your glory, in your Son's name. Amen.